Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. you see. We have come to what is undoubtedly the greatest sermon in the history of the world. How can it not be the greatest sermon? Because it was preached by the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. This sermon, known as the Sermon on the Mount, covers three chapters in the book of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7. And the biblical evidence is that Jesus preached this at one time, and it was one sermon that he preached. Because it says... Uh, at the end of chapter 7, that he came down uh, <clears throat> from the mountains and then began to minister uh, among the people who had heard. We are told in Matthew chapter 4 that there were great multitudes that were following Jesus. And they came to him from all kinds of places. Uh, they came up from uh, Jerusalem to from Judea, which surrounded Jerusalem. They came from all the area of Galilee, where Jesus was. It also says they came from Decapolis, which was known as the Ten Cities, east of the Jordan. Uh, the scripture says a great multitude were following Jesus because of what he was doing, what he was able to do, because of his healing. Of course, he would draw large crowds because there wasn't any illness that he couldn't heal. And so everybody was coming. Uh, he was a sensation, to put it mildly. Biblical scholars uh, put uh, this time, of the, the time frame of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, somewhere in the spring of A.D. 28. In Luke's version, it's interesting, uh, back in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus had it says, gone up to the mountain the day before to pray, and he prayed all night. And then Luke says, when day came, his disciples gathered to him. Matthew just picks up when the disciples come, but it's Luke says he had an all-night prayer meeting with himself before the next day he preaches this Sermon on the Mount. A lot of things that we can glean from that. Of course, any preachers uh, praying about the messages uh, that they preach. We see here that uh, 
the text say, says that Jesus, when he went up to the mountain, it says his 12 disciples uh, came up to him. And he sat down to teach. It was a custom many times for rabbis to sit and teach. And Luke says that Jesus descended to a flat place on the mountain, and it was there that he began to teach his disciples. So the Sermon on the Mount basically was preached to his twelve disciples. But it was done, we're told, in the, the hearing of the multitudes. They heard this sermon as well, though it might have been for the primary emphasis uh, to the twelve disciples. And one of the other gospel writers talks about their Jesus giving instructions to his disciples about sending them out to bear witness, to have authority over the demons, to, to preach the gospel as well. And so we're told that there, are, there was the multitude there. They did hear this because at the end of the sermon in chapter and verse 28, Matthew 7:28, it says that the, the multitude, when Jesus completed the message, they were astonished at his teaching. It says there in the text, uh, in, in Matthew 7, 28, it says, The result that was when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. So, it tells us why they were amazed. They had been used to hearing the teaching of the scribes, and when they heard Jesus, it was nothing like that. And the primary difference, we are told, is they understood his teaching as one who had authority. Somehow, the teaching of the scribes didn't convey an authoritative message. So you sit there, you're left thinking, well, what was it like to hear the scribes? There probably was a lot of snoring going on. It probably was dull. Uh, there was, the main difference is that the scribes did not come across as commanding. Now, when, he, when it talks about Jesus teaching with authority, unlike the scribes, what, what is involved in speaking with authority? Well, first of all, Jesus is God, right? He is God in the flesh. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. When he speaks, you better listen because you're he hearing the voice of God. And how else would God speak except with great forcefulness, uh, commanding, uh, and eliciting something among the hearers it probably was given with vigor, with force, and it is a, teach, a, a teaching that gave the air of a, like a judge who gives a charge. And so it's authoritative. It had a tone of authority to it, uh, one which expected people to listen to and to heed to what was being said. That's authoritative preaching. 
It was not a mere discourse or a lecture of facts. One thing that you could do uh, is, is study the history of, of preaching and those whom God had used throughout history who were recognized as, as great preachers. And without exception, here's what you're going to find. Without exception of those who were known as, as good preachers was that they taught with authority. They gave the voice of God. They, they spoke because they understood their position that they are heralds of the king. So if you're a herald of the king, the expectation is listen to what the king has to say and do it. It was true of Whitfield. It was true even of the Wesleys. It was true of... Uh, Charles Spurgeon, who wrote a great book on preaching to his students and talked about the necessity of this. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous English preacher, says the same thing. One time in Presbytery, years ago, we had someone come to us, and when you have a Presbytery exam for preachers, one of the requirements is that you have to preach before the Presbytery not only sustain a theological exam for hours, you have to preach before the presbytery, and the presbytery has to approve the preaching. We had a gentleman came, and at the end, there was a lot of silence, I remember, and uh, one of our presbyters said, well, that was a nice lecture. (laughs) That's what he said. It was a nice lecture informative lecture. But he says, I don't think you preached. That really caught the the person by surprise. And the the thing was, all the rest of us had the same feeling. And he says, let me go and uh, talk to this person for a while (laughs) and and see where we're going to go. Basically just read, read something, and it was a very monotone, and you just said, well, I mean, it was true, but was it really preaching? And, it, and so what we learn here is that this, this multitude saw a difference between Jesus' teaching and the teaching of the scribes. Now, the scribes, uh, we do understand, had misinformation at, at times, but there was a distinction between that and the crowds immediately saw the difference. So one thing we could say is that authoritative teaching or preaching is commanding. It it asks the audience to do something, to respond. It demands something of them. So the teaching of the scribes, again, was not like what Jesus taught and how he taught. So in this sense... We can see another thing we need to recognize about uh, the scribes when it says that Jesus taught with authority unlike the scribes. Think about the two groups of people that Jesus had some real problems with that we see in the Scripture. With the Pharisees and with the scribes. He had run-ins with both the Pharisees and the scribes. And he often condemned both the Pharisees and the scribes for the fact that they were spiritually dead. 
So you don't expect someone who is spiritually dead to be very commanding, to have any power in their teaching and preaching, because it, is, it doesn't have the blessing of God. And without the blessing of God, it's just going to fall, as it were, and of no effect on people. One of the things you see, and why uh, George Whitfield was so popular in England, was essentially, it said, the people were bored stiff among the Anglican preaching that was going on. And here you come across this man Whitfield, who was very animated. He was not cut out of that stone, uh, as it were. And people wanted to hear what he had to say. He often complained that one of the problems was a spiritually dead clergy. That didn't make him very popular among some of those. Later on, he apologized some, maybe that he overreacted with, with some, but it was commonly understood. There wasn't much there. And so, <clears throat> rarely do dead, uh, do religious leaders who are dead in their sins, they're not going to hardly ever be that convincing. Now, you might find some motivational speakers that have some kind of ability like that, but as a norm, Dead religious leaders do not uh, come across as authoritative because there is a darkness there. Their souls themselves are darkened in sin. And so the people were used to hearing these scribes, nothing there. And then they hear Jesus. And it's, it was a dramatic difference. And they recognized it. Well, stepping back for a moment and looking, and the, the purpose of the message today is we're going to just give a general introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, the overall thrust, and next week begin to, to, to uh, look at the various parts of the Sermon on the Mount. But it's important to see the Sermon on the Mount in its entirety first, and then we begin to look at it in detail. Well, how have others historically viewed the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, <clears throat> throughout the centuries, there, have, there are several views of the Sermon on the Mount, and it raises the question, what was the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount? What was its intention? Why did Jesus preach it or teach it? There have been those who have looked at this and merely refer to it as what we call the social gospel. As you go through uh, these three chapters that are known as the Sermon on the Mount, there are those that uh, look at it and say, well, this is some kind of ethical code that we are to live by. It's a standard. In fact, the liberals have, this is the view of the liberals that have, that believe that Jesus, we don't want to necessarily say he is divine or whether he was really raised from the dead. That's immaterial. A lot of people have a great respect, and other religions have a great respect for Jesus. Why? Because he was a good moral teacher. Because what he had to say, well, if you followed it, it'll be a better society if you follow it. And so this idea of a social gospel. And so that somehow this, this message that Jesus preached was, in the minds of some, intended for the general public just to be better people. 
And somehow, in being better people, they could usher in the kingdom of God on earth by just trying to be better. Trying to be better. Now, the problem here is that no one can of themselves, as you go through this, you immediately or should immediately recognize this is tough, what Jesus is saying. This is hard. And can I really, uh, am I easily prone to do all these things that Jesus commanded? Hardly. And so there are some that have touted that this is just some of the best moral teaching that's ever been. In fact, that was the view of Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin, uh, when asked near, uh, he lived to be, close to 90 years of age, and uh, just several months, uh, well, in the late uh, 1700s, uh, someone, a preacher, we have the record of this, wrote Benjamin Franklin and asked him, what is your view, sir, of Jesus Christ? And he says, well, some believe that he was God in the flesh. I'm just paraphrasing. And he says, I'm really not sure. And he says, in fact, it really doesn't matter to me. And being up in age, he says, I'll soon find out anyway. Well, two months later, he'll be dead. And he found out. And despite his personal friendship, of sorts with George Whitfield and others, he says, Whitfield longed to see me converted, but he never had that opportunity. These are the words of Franklin. But Franklin was one who said, there was, we all ought to, as a nation, as a republic, follow the teachings of Jesus because he was a great moral teacher, the greatest of all time. So here's a man that recognized it as the greatest teaching of all time, and yet he did not personally embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior and perished in his sins. So that's how some have viewed the Sermon on the Mount. Then we have, uh, in the evangelical realm, we have the premillennial dispensationalists and their view of the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to read you just several quotes from some. You may not be aware of this. It is their perspective of many of those of that theological perspective that the Sermon on the Mount was not intended for this church age. In fact, the most notable, if you had the old Schofield Reference Bible, here's what you would find C.I. Schofield saying with reference to the Sermon on the Mount. He said, this is his Bible in 1917. He says, the Sermon on the Mount has application literally to the kingdom. In this, in this sense, it gives the divine constitution for the righteous government of the earth. Whenever the kingdom of heaven is established on earth, it will be according to that constitution. Whenever that kingdom is established, meaning after Jesus comes. Another dispensational writer, here's what he said about the Lord's Prayer. Of course, the Lord's Prayer is found in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what they said. The kingdom prayer will have its proper and full use in a time yet future. 
After the coming of our Lord for his people and the catching up of the church, there will be a believing remnant of Jewish disciples raised up who will go everywhere preaching the gospel of the kingdom, saying, Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. The Jewish remnant will terribly be persecuted under the awful reign of the beast king and the power of Satan. In other words, the Lord's prayer was not intended for us today. Others have said, quote, The Lord gave this sermon to the Jews, not to the church. They also said the sermon does not set forth distinctive church truth. The sermon, they say, contains truth that's useful to the church, precious to the church, but not truth that is distinctive to the church. And then finally, one dispensationalist said, by the name of Gabeline, said, In our days, more than ever before, we notice an astonishing misuse of the Sermon on the Mount. The saddest of all is that many preachers of various evangelical denominations fall back upon it as the most important document of Christendom. For them, it seems to be more and more the gospel, and the consequences are that we hear in our times more ethical preaching, more about becoming better, doing good, improving yourself than ever before. It will require much time and a great space to show all the errors which are springing up from this application. It is the gospel of works of evolution. Now, I trust that you see there's a real problem with that perspective. The Sermon on the Mount not intended for us? That the Lord's Prayer is not intended for us? It just goes to show this this a terrible misunderstanding and application of biblical truth here. And the reason that they have erred is because of a faulty view of the kingdom of God. And so we see here the very nature I'm going to say this. The very nature of the Sermon on the Mount is precisely given by Jesus to convey the gospel. It's not anti-gospel. It is the nature of the gospel and what flows out of the gospel. It was given to a believer in Jesus how this believer in Jesus is to live. It's not given for the purpose to do something in order to be a Christian. That wasn't the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. It was given in order to show the person who believes in Jesus, this is what a Christian is like. This is how they are supposed to look. This is, this is how a Christian looks. The Sermon on the Mount. This is how they are to behave. For example, we, we saw if you look at Matthew four twenty-three. Back up for a moment, it says, Jesus was going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And then we saw in in Matthew 4, verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right there, Jesus is saying, The kingdom is already here. The kingdom is not something way off into the future. It's definitely not something after my second coming. I mean, those that that twist that make some distinction between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, making it totally different. And it's not. Uh, You can go and do a study and you're going to find that those terms are used interchangeably in the gospel writers. 
One writer uses the kingdom of heaven. Another, in referring to the exact same instance, uses the kingdom of God. So there is not this distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. No, they're one and the same. And Jesus said, the gospel is at hand. Repent and believe. So it should be evident what Jesus was doing when he was teaching his disciples. Remember, he was primarily teaching this to his 12 disciples. And the crowd, as it were, were overhearing what he was teaching to his disciples. He was teaching them how they would live. He was showing them what they should be doing after he is gone. It was meant to be heeded right then, and it was meant to be lived down through history. So it's absurd to think that Jesus never intended uh, for this sermon to be uh, lead up to the gospel or contrary to the gospel. No, it was the gospel, and what it, the gospel, once it comes to men in a saving way, what they look like, what a Christian really looks like. And so, it's a, in a real way, the Sermon on the Mount is a glorious explanation of what our Lord called his new commandment. Remember Jesus talked about a new commandment I give to you? And that new commandment was, as it brings out in John 13, that new commandment is that you are to love others as I have loved you. So really, when you look at the the Sermon on the Mount, it is a fleshing out of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what was, uh, and, and so the kingdom has come. Jesus says, the gospel I am preaching. The kingdom has come. And Jesus would say to his followers, uh, elsewhere he says, also he says, the kingdom not only has come, but he says the kingdom is within you. It has come and it is within you. Now what was Matthew's purpose for setting this out? And he, he will set it out more than any of the other gospel writers, though they will mention similar things. It's the fullest uh, detailed information of the sermon is by Matthew, by far. Well, here's what Matthew was doing. Remember, Matthew is writing primarily to the Jews to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah. And the Jews had this false view of the Messiah. They had this uh, materialistic, political view of the Messiah thinking that, that Jesus somehow, that the Messiah would come in this great glory and he would dispel the Romans with just the wave of his hand. In fact, we do see instances in Jesus' ministry, it says that the crowds were seeking to seize Jesus and to make him a king over them. And it was all politically based, materialistic view of this. That somehow, that the kingdom of God is this political entity whereby the people, the Jews, would have a great superiority over the other nations. In fact, by the way, that's exactly how the dispensationalists view 
the kingdom of God. They view it as when that kingdom is, comes after his second coming, that it will be primarily a political kingdom where Jesus will be in a literal Jerusalem on a literal throne and will rule the nations with a rod of iron and keep them in check. So that is a, that is a view that is very similar to the Jews in Jesus' time. So Matthew is seeking to dispel that notion that the kingdom of God is something in this world, though it obviously has impact in this world. Remember when Jesus was before Pilate, John 18 reveals this. So Pilate asked Jesus, he says, so are you the king of the Jews? And he says, you have spoken rightly. But he says, my kingdom is not of this world. Some have misunderstood that, misinterpreted that, thinking that the kingdom of God has no relevancy to uh, our culture. That is not what Jesus meant there. When he says, my kingdom, notice one thing Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, if it were my disciples would be fighting with swords for me. But it's not of this world. What did Jesus mean? He means that the kingdom of God, its origin is heavenly, spiritual. It does not arise from the earth as such. It is not a material entity. Does it have impact on the culture? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean its origin is of this world. Jesus says it's a spiritual kingdom. And that's why it makes sense that Jesus says the kingdom of God is now. The kingdom of God is within you. It's a spiritual realm whose origin is in heaven that has a great impact in this world, but it doesn't originate from this world. So to refute this Jewish misconception of the kingdom... Uh, At the outset, Matthew is saying, and it's at the outset of his gospel account, he is making known very surely to uh, those who would read his gospel account that fundamentally the kingdom is spiritual, that it's within you. And so the evidence that this kingdom is within you is whether you manifest all these things that Jesus talks about and what he commands. Is evidence. Hardly does the kingdom of God lead to some uh, military power, because Jesus says, uh, or that it will be advanced by some uh, military effort or by any kind of political uh, means, is because he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Next week we'll talk about what is involved in this idea of being uh, poor in spirit. The Sermon on the Mount is not intended to be viewed, again, so that we'll be sure that we understand this. It is not like live like this in order to become a Christian. That was not its intent. Not to live like this in order to become a Christian. No, because you are a Christian, Jesus says, this is what you will look like. This is how a Christian is supposed to live. 
See the difference? It's not a self-effort to, to become saved. No, because you are a Christian, then this is what the Christian will look like. In other words, they're going to be poor in spirit. They're going to be gentle. They're going to be merciful. They're going to be peacemakers. They endure persecution for righteousness sake. That's what a Christian does. And throughout history, you see that worked out in the, his, in the history of the church. Especially on the one in the persecution. How they manifested themselves and stood out in a distinct way because of being persecuted for righteousness sake. The early Christians and then the Christians down through the, the ages and like in Scotland, all those that were killed uh, for their, their belief in the truth. And so what we see here, how incredible it is, the notion, mentioned earlier that some would think this sermon was not meant for the church. It, of course it was meant for the church. You know, Jesus died on Calvary's cross to enable us, to enable us to live the Sermon on the Mount. Why, why did he die? Turn to Titus, chapter 2, look at verse 14. Titus, chapter 2, verse 14. Talking about Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession Zealous for good deeds. There you have it. That's why Jesus died for you. He died for you. So, let's put it in the words of Ephesians 5. So that he might present his bride, his church, what? Holy and blameless, without wrinkle. So that she be holy. Jesus' death was so that he would deem us. From lawless deeds. That's why it's inconsistent in the life of those who profess to be Christians. And Jesus will bring this out very vividly when we get to Matthew chapter 7. It's one thing to profess to be a Christian. And it's another thing to live like a Christian. And Jesus is going to have some really stern words for those who simply profess to be Christians but who do not obey his commands. In other words, there's not a changed life. As Jesus will say, that if, you, if there's not a changed life, there has been no redemption. Because he doesn't redeem people to live in rebellion against him. He doesn't redeem people for that. He redeems the people so that they will... Purify, be purified, zealous for good deeds. And keep that in mind as we go through. Just keep in mind Titus 2.14 as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. And all these things, blessed are you if you're like this. Be the light of the world and all this. Keep that in mind. This is how a Christian is to live. So the Sermon on the Mount. shows me, in one sense, my great need of the new birth. It shows me my great need for the power of the Holy Spirit 
to carry it out. Because, brethren, there is no way that you and I, in our own strength, can carry out these things that Jesus says. Not in our own strength. Living the Christian life is not meant to being something that you just gather up enough strength, as it were, to try to do and work hard at, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, as they would say. No, it is walking in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, and then obeying Him, as Jesus is going to say, that in this Sermon on the Mount, that it's, He likens uh, those who are His disciples to one who builds a, a house. You either build it on the rock or you build it on the sand. And all those who build it on the sand are those who hear but do not do anything. But those who hear but do things have their house built on the rock. So, all of this that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount is to be done in the power of the Spirit. And it can't be obviously done by an unbeliever can't be done by an unbeliever. And the reason it can't be done, they don't have the power source. And that's, that's it's so important that we understand that we, we don't just try hard to do the right thing. It's a matter of understanding and pleading with the Lord to help us. The only way you're going to do it is by the Spirit's power. The only way you can be obedient to any of the commands of Scripture is by the Lord's Spirit, by His power. And unbelievers don't, they're still in bondage to sin, the Scripture says. They're still in bondage to Satan. As, as Scripture says, they are given over to the lusts of the flesh. They are still darkened in their mind and, un, and understanding, as Ephesians says. They can't do it. But if you're a real disciple of Jesus, you can do it. And so Jesus, who did he give his Sermon on the Mount to? His disciples. He gave them to his disciples. And the, and the multitude overheard it, and they were astonished, because this was extraordinary teaching, unlike the scribes, uh, mainly because of all the commands that Jesus is given to the people. So, we can look at this. It is meant for the church. How many times does Jesus say in the opening part of the sermon, Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Blessed are you who mourn. Blessed are you who are gentle. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are you who are merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall see God. And blessed are those persecuted for righteousness' sake. You ever stop and think what it means to be blessed? It's, it's a biblical way of saying, you want to be happy? You want to have a fulfilled life? Well, here you go. Here's how you have a fulfilled life. By exemplifying the things that Jesus says is indicative of being a Christian. See, the thing about it is this. God created us. He created man, male and female, after his own image, the Scripture says. And that image is said primarily in Ephesians to be holiness and righteousness and truth. The human is unlike any other creature that God made. 
We are, were made to walk with God. God communicated with Adam and Eve. He says he walked with them uh, in, in the Garden of Eden before the fall. There was this communion with that Adam and Eve had with the living God that was lost for a time in their transgression. And so we are made to commune with the Lord. Now, you can take a poll of people as to what, what, what is your number one goal. Let's, let's put it this way. Yesterday, on my paint job, the lady of the house, this family's moved up from Florida. And uh, she had just arrived. The husband had been there all week, but she just arrived. And I was saying, well, what do you do, you know, for a living? Because I gathered she worked. She, she told me, and she says, and it was a pretty high position that she has over in Greensboro, along with her husband. But she said, you know, I'm not very happy. He says, I, 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 I just soon quit. She said, you know, there's more to life than this. I said, I'm going to remember that. I mean, they, they got a fair amount of money, it appears. But that was a person who articulated like many people. What is the number one thing people say they want in life? To be happy, right? Not necessarily to have all the money. Sometimes they have this mistaken notion that money will bring happiness, but people would be willing to trade. This woman was willing to trade money for happiness. And a lot of people are willing to do that. But you see, the, the problem is people have this Wrong notion of how to be happy. Jesus said, you want to be blessed? So to be blessed is to be happy. It is to have a meaningful life. In other words, you want to have a meaningful life? And Jesus says, Here's, I'll tell you how to do it. Be merciful. Be a peacemaker. Be gentle. Don't they have a revengeful spirit? I'm telling you how to do it, he says. I'm telling you, he says, how to be a Christian. How a Christian looks. And so as we go through this Sermon on the Mount, here are some of the questions that you ought to be asking yourself. Is this me? Really? Do I do this? Do I manifest this characteristic? If not, why not? Why don't I do this? This is what Jesus commanded. Could I only be a professing Christian and not a possessing Christian? Now, see, there's a difference between professing Christ and possessing Christ. Simon Magus, we're told in the Scripture, professed Christ in Acts 8. It says that he believed, now this is Simon the Magician, it says that he believed and was in fact baptized. But then when he saw all the things that Philip could do, he said he wanted to buy the gift with money. And Peter comes along and says, Simon, he says, you got this wrong. He says, I can see you are still in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. 
Now, this is what Peter says about one who just said to believe in Jesus and was baptized into the church. So there is a difference. And Jesus will really drive this home in chapter 7, the difference between professing Christ. He says, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he does the will of my Father. So, James... This whole idea of what a Christian is, the distinction between a professing believer and a true believer. And by, by the way, that, that term true believer is used many times in the larger catechism. Just look sometime, especially in uh, the catechism questions 50 through 70, you're going to see that term true believer used at least four or five times. So what that's implying, and our Westminster divines understood, there is a difference between professing Christ and, and living like Christ. And Jesus, not in the Sermon on the Mount, but in Luke 14, we're told that he'll turn to the multitudes who were following him, and he says, let me tell you something, unless you hate your father and mother and your brothers and sisters, and yes, even your own life, you can't be my disciple." And there are other indications when Jesus spoke that says that the crowds, many of the crowds left him. In fact, it says some who were his disciples, meaning some who were closely following them, weren't the twelve, but who were closely following him, called disciples, says in John 6, they left him, never to follow him anymore. And Jesus turns to the twelve, you going to leave too? And that's when Peter says, well, to whom will we go? You are the one who has the words of eternal life. Where are we going to go? No, we're with you, Jesus. So we see here in this idea of the difference between a professing Christian and one who possesses Christ and lives like one. Remember, James talks about that in James chapter 2. The difference between a uh, what some have called a historical faith, but it doesn't, it doesn't go over into... Their practical living. That's why James says, if you see someone in need, a brother or sister in need, and you don't do anything, he says, where where is that faith? Where is that faith? No, a Christian demonstrates it. They care for people. First John put it this way, where he says, uh, First John says, those who are born of God practice the truth. And then he says, this is how you, dis- uh, well, turn to First John because it is important. First John 3. Look at verse 7 and following. First John 3. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. Stop right there. Does that sound anywhere familiar at all to Titus 2.14 that has told you that he redeemed us from every lawless deed and to have a people zealous for good works? It ought to be because there's a real close similarity. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. John, in his uh, epistles, put it straightforward. 
You see, in, in this regard, in the Sermon on the Mount, it is a great exhortation, a soul-searching sermon for me to say, to, to realize, you know, I call upon the name of Jesus. This is the way I'm supposed to live. This is, a, this is what I am supposed to be. And if I find myself not that way, then what I have to do, and look, we're not, all, we're not going to be perfect in this, but we do have this attitude. We don't have the attitude that as some say, well, yeah, I know I, I fouled up, but, you know, none of us are perfect. That is not the right attitude. Because Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he will say, be you perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Your goal is to be like Christ. That is your goal. That should be your heart's desire. Yes, because we still have the remaining effects of sin, we struggle. But at least there is that heart that yearns after righteousness. At least there's this heart that desires the Word of God. I mean, that is a Christian. We're going to see that um, the Christian is concerned about the spirit of the law, not su- simply some material, uh, mechanical externalism of the law. Remember, remember the story that Jesus gave of the publican and the uh, and the scribe. And the scribe standing off by himself, saying, "I'm glad I'm not like this man." But remember what that guy said. He says, "I pray." And I tithe. But Lord, I'm glad I'm not like this no good tax collector. Who was over there, couldn't even, as we said, couldn't even look up. Woe, as he was saying, have mercy on me, the sinner. And Jesus says, now, which one went away justified? Well, it's the one who begged for mercy. And so here's this guy who would describe whose emphasis was doing religious things, but he really didn't know God. Israel is chastened by the Lord, especially in Isaiah chapter 1, for being religious, but not really having a concern for people. They were worshiping. They were going through all the sacrifices. And in Isaiah 1 says, God says, you know what? I'm tired of it. I don't, I, don't, I don't want your sacrifices anymore. I don't want to listen to your prayers anymore. Now, wait a minute. Who commanded to pray? Who gave the sacrifices uh, to keep? God. But God says, I don't want, I'm tired of it. Look what he says. Turn to Isaiah 1. And after Isaiah rebuked him, he says, now here's why God doesn't want to listen to their multiple prayers anymore. Verse 16, 15 following. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. 
Seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. These are things that you're going to see brought out in the Sermon on the Mount. There are those who were very religious, but it was all external. It wasn't within. In fact, Matthew chapter 6 deals with the Christian living a life in the presence of God. Completely dependent upon Him. For example, in Matthew 6, it's going to be the place where it says, uh, Jesus says, don't be anxious about your food and your clothing. He says, God takes care of the birds of the air. Uh, he causes uh, the lilies of the field to be arrayed. Solomon wasn't even as wonderful as this. So what did he say? He says, God knows you need all these things. It's not that you don't need them. God knows them. But here's what God says. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, all these needs will be added to you. But where's your priority? The kingdom of God. So when he gives a command of what you should be like, being gentle and merciful, uh, peacemaker, being poor in spirit, and all of this. Uh, that's what he's expecting of us. Living in his presence. And so the, the person who prays, remember in Matthew 6, we're going to see Jesus say, when you go pray, don't be like the Pharisees who stand on the corner to be heard of men. He says, they have their reward. Now, notice that. They have their reward. What were they wanting? They wanted attention. They got it. But Jesus clearly says, that's it. They got their reward, but it's not my reward. It's not mine. It was all worldly. And they got what they wanted. But they are deficient in my sight. And so, the person who prays is not one trying to show off not trying to show how pious he or she is. Uh, they pray in the presence of the Lord because they have a heart for the Lord. And then, of course, chapter 7 deals with the Christian always lives under the judgment of God. They're always conscious of that fact, that there is a healthy fear of the Lord. That's why I said in, in chapter 7, we're going to say, not everybody who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Lord, I hope I'm not one of those. In fact, it's really going to get really sticky because he'll say, there are some who cast out demons who did many marvelous works. And Jesus said, I still didn't know you. I've studied that multiple times, and I still don't fully understand how you can do some of those things. And Jesus say, I still never knew you. <laughs> How can you do a marvelous work and still not be a Christian? Because that's what he's saying. See, for Jesus to say, I never knew you, means you're not mine. You're not a Christian. You may, show, you may fool a lot of people. You may be engaged in a lot of, quote, good things in the minds of some, but he says, I, I don't know you. So it's very, to see, to see how... The Sermon on the Mount is to be very much of a soul searching for people. It really is. 
I can see how it'd be very uh, fit for people to say, well, it's not meant for the church. Well, that's really convenient, isn't it? I don't have to be that concerned about these things. Well, you better be. So the Christian life is one of great demands put on us by the Lord Jesus of what it really means to be a Christian. And as we said, the Sermon on the Mount will end with the Lord telling us how we are to build our house. In other words, how we are to our lives are to have the, the solid foundation and not on sand. The Christian is a person who lives in constant, intimate uh, communion with God. They are self-consciously aware all the time they belong to Jesus. I belong to Jesus. And when I, when I blow it, it bothers me. There's, there should be a guilt there that I blew it. Lord, forgive me. I, I need to be better than this. Not by my own strength, but by your strength. And so we, we belong to another kingdom. We don't belong to the kingdom of this world. The Christian, unlike the Romanist, who thinks, and we refer to this in the Sunday school hour, who thinks that holiness or sainthood is involved in this monasticism where we separate ourselves physically from the world. The Apostle Paul says, I didn't tell you to separate yourself from the world, literally. You are to be in the world, but you're not to be of the world. In the world, but not of the world. So the Sermon on the Mount is not some code of ethics per se. The Sermon on the Mount is exemplary of Christian character. Christian character. This is the way I'm supposed to be. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote extensively, in fact, wrote a book on the Sermon on the Mount. And I liked what he said in one place, because he said, he says, if you find yourself arguing at any point with the Sermon on the Mount, it means either your interpretation is wrong, or there is something really spiritually wrong with you. If you find yourself arguing at any point with what Jesus said. In other words, he says, criticizing the sermon, he says, says a world about us, not the sermon. The Lord expects us to live this way. Oh, it's meant for the church for all time. So keep that in mind. This, as we go through it, this is what a Christian really looks like. And then you have to ask yourself, am I one of them? Am I one of them? Am I the real thing? Or am I just playing games? Let's pray.